I'm Bonnie Glazer, Director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the prospects for China joining a strategic nuclear dialogue and what might be achieved through such a dialogue. China has long held that the two nuclear superpowers, Russia and the United States, bear a special responsibility and should take the lead to reduce their nuclear arsenals. In 1982, China said that it would join such talks if the U.S. and then the former Soviet Union reduced their nuclear weapons and means of delivery by 50 percent. After the two nuclear superpowers entered into nuclear arms reduction talks that led to Start One, China revised its position, calling for the U.S. and Russia to drastically reduce their nuclear arsenals in a verifiable and irreversible manner. As a precondition for China to join, and after the Trump administration called for China to join with the U.S. and Russia in nuclear arms limitation talks just last year, China's foreign ministry spokesman said that Beijing would not take part in such talks and said it was up to Moscow and Washington to further reduce their nuclear weapons stockpiles before other countries participate. To discuss China's views on entering into trilateral nuclear talks or bilateral nuclear dialogue and the potential impact of such dialogue, I'm joined by Dr. David Santoro. Dr. Santoro is Vice President and Director for Nuclear Policy Programs at the Pacific Forum. He specializes in strategic and deterrence issues, as well as nonproliferation and nuclear security. He recently contributed a publication of the Institute for Peace Research and Security Policy at the University of Hamburg, titled "Trilateral Arms Control: Perspectives from Washington, Moscow, and Beijing." Thanks for joining us today, David. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. So. In the Obama administration, there was a nuclear posture review that was issued, and in that NPR, the U.S. expressed its desire to enhance strategic stability with China. So, what exactly is strategic stability, and what would strategic stability with China look like? So, the Obama administration focused on strategic stability in its NPR. Really, as an effort to move away from deterrence as the organizing principle between the major nuclear arms states, the U.S., Russia, and China, and as you know, during the Cold War and even after, the focus was nuclear deterrence. And back in 2009, when the Obama administration took office, there was great hope that we could actually move away from deterrence and organize strategic relations between major nuclear arms states. On a less antagonistic footing. Now, the administration never defined stability per se, but behind the concept was the idea that there was a greater potential for cooperation than a potential for confrontation in U.S.-Russia and U.S.-China relations. And there was real hope that these states could not only improve their bilateral relations, and that they could work together better to address other challenges. Such as proliferation problems, and so on and so forth. You got to remember as well that、uh, at the time the focus was not great power competition. Again, there was hope that major power relations could actually improve. The focus of the NPR was, you know, nuclear terrorism and nuclear proliferation, and the idea was that while the possibility of military flashpoints between the major powers remained. 
these problems could actually be managed and Washington, Moscow, and Beijing had more in common and could cooperate to improve their own strategic relationships and deal with issues of global concerns. Moving on to what strategic stability means or looks like with China, again, the Obama administration never defined strategic stability, but it invited Beijing to engage in strategic nuclear dialogue. And from Washington's perspective at the time, Strategic stability was something that both Washington and Beijing had to define, something that they had to define jointly. Beijing refused to engage in dialogue. And from a Chinese perspective, the idea was, you know, quote, the conditions are not ripe for dialogue because the U.S. arsenal is still much larger than China's arsenal. And because the U.S. is investing in missile defense, conventional strike capabilities and so on and so forth. From a Chinese perspective, what they've argued is that they stand to lose in engaging in dialogue with the U.S. because they would be required to accept a great level of transparency and therefore they would compromise the survivability of their much smaller nuclear force. And so during the Obama years, we really haven't made progress in defining and strengthening U.S.-China strategic stability, even though, again, the purpose of the Obama NPR was to hopefully move towards a more stable and more predictable relationship with China. At the end of last year, the Trump administration formally invited China to begin what they're calling a bilateral strategic security dialogue. And apparently the hope is that such a dialogue would actually pave the way for trilateral nuclear arms control talks. So what do you think should be the agenda between the United States and China if they are to initiate such a dialogue and and what could realistically be achieved? So I think, first of all, it's important to note that the Trump NPR, which was published in February 2018, already talked about the importance of strategic dialogue, both actually with Russia and China. And so while the administration's key strategy document, including the NPR, placed a lot of emphasis on major power competition, it has also not given up on engaging Moscow and Beijing, and it's continued to stress that the U.S. seeks stable relationships with both countries. Again, the U.S. has been very clear that it does not want to undermine the strategic balance with China and with Russia. Now, the the president first talked about trilateral arms control in the form of a tweet in December 2018, and While many initially thought that this was just a random thought, it turned out to be an idea that never died, or at least that hasn't died so far. And right now, U.S. thinking about trilateral arms control is not very clear. It's not clear if the administration wants to incorporate China into the U.S.-Russia New START agreement, or if it wants a new agreement altogether. It's not clear that if they want a new agreement You know, it's not clear if that agreement would focus on nuclear warheads, on deployed forces, or if we would want to pursue a verification regime. All these details, which are essential, have not been revealed. And right now, trilateral arms control is what I like to call an idea without a plan. Now, you know, at the same time, there are many smart people in the USG that are seriously thinking about these issues. But again, details about the the way forward are, are missing. Now, 
I think it was significant to see that the U.S. decided to invite China to a bilateral dialogue in December 2019. And it's important to stress that this followed a statement by Chris Ford, the State Department's Assistant Secretary for International Security and Nonproliferation, who said that the U.S. goal is to directly engage both Russians and Chinese in bilateral tracks, which would ultimately merge into a trilateral track. And so it seems to be that the vision is to pursue two separate bilateral dialogues, which would eventually, again, merge into a trilateral track. That's not very surprising because while getting a trilateral agreement is in and of itself not impossible, and in my paper, the paper you mentioned, I outlined the contours of what could look like, it's more likely to be something that we get to after we've done progress in two separate bilateral track. And in the U.S.-China context, at least in the short term, realistically getting an official dialogue process in place would be significant and engaging in strategic stability talks that leads to confidence building measures in specific areas, I would argue, especially in crisis management, would be even better. The Chinese, of course, have been very uninterested in engaging in arms control talks in the past. And, you know, there was one round of nuclear policy talks with the United States in April of 2008, I believe. But they really, of course, didn't go anywhere. And then Jim Steinberg had the idea, which he eventually did see through, of creating these talks that talked not only about nuclear weapons, but also about cyber and space. And my understanding is there wasn't much progress in those either. So you've apparently suggested that China might be open to such a dialogue now with the United States. So what's changed? Why is China interested now? If we define arms control as, as formal agreements that, again, limit or reduce weapon numbers, then I will tell you that from my perspective, Beijing is just not ready to initiate talks like that. And in fact, Chinese officials have said that much on multiple occasions since President Trump mentioned that China should enter arms control talks. Uh, they've been very, very clear. The answer basically is we're not going to do that. That being said, I don't think that means they're opposed to initiate nuclear dialogue more broadly defined. I think we could very well see agreement to engage in bilateral dialogue, which, you know, from my perspective, would be progress and could lead to concrete deliverables. Again, more transparency, specific confidence building measures in some areas, hopefully, from my perspective, in a way that would improve our ability to avoid or better manage crises. But what has changed in terms of the thinking in Beijing? Why are they potentially interested in a dialogue now? You know, one of the things that I've been doing over the years was run a track 1.5 U.S.-China strategic nuclear dialogue in partnership with a Chinese think tank, a think tank affiliated with the People's Liberation Army. And over the years, I've seen a growing willingness on the part of the Chinese experts community to engage in a dialogue with the U.S. for multiple reasons, but mostly because well, I guess I want to say two reasons. One, because over the years, I think the bilateral nuclear relationship has considerably matured. We've been able to talk to each other in a much more sophisticated manner. We understand each other better. I think that's number one. And then that hasn't actually helped us to get to a dialogue. But in recent years, as the competition has increased 
in all areas of the broader U.S.-China bilateral relationship, a number of Chinese strategists and policymakers have said that we should really seek to insulate the nuclear relationship from those broader competitive dynamics. And basically, the argument that they've made is that we can compete, we will continue to compete, but let's try and make sure that that's not the case in the nuclear area. And, you know, from my perspective, it seems to me that the rationale is that, you know, again, there will be U.S.-China competition, but we should try at least to limit or control U.S.-China strategic nuclear competition. Now, I want to be very clear, I don't have a crystal ball, but it seems to me that over the past few meetings that I've had with the Chinese expert community, I see more of a distinct possibility that Beijing might agree to some sort of engagement with Washington, especially given that Washington has suggested that it would no longer wait for Beijing to be ready. Again, Washington has made clear that it's ready to take countermeasures. And in the past, Washington has pretty much been in waiting mode, waiting for Beijing to be ready to engage. China's nuclear arsenal obviously pales by comparison to that of the United States. And one of the things that apparently you argue in papers, others do as well, I think the Defense Department's annual report on China's military capabilities has also said that China is engaging in significant improvements to its nuclear arsenal. And you argue that arms control was really less necessary when China had a less sophisticated nuclear arsenal, but it's these advancements in its uh, nuclear capabilities, both in the past and I assume potentially going forward, that will make this uh, dialogue perhaps more necessary. So am I correctly understanding your argument? And what's the basis for your belief that China plans to improve its arsenal? And does that include significantly ramping up nuclear warheads or is it something else? It's really not a secret that that China has been improving its arsenal both qualitatively and quantitatively. The Chinese are even saying that clearly, even though granted they are adamant that they will not engage in any type of arms race and that they will stick to minimum deterrence, which has been their longstanding policy. And yes, right now, the arsenal is significantly smaller in size than the U.S. and the Russian arsenal, but it's it's growing and it's been growing faster in recent years, not so much in nuclear weapon numbers, but certainly in terms of nuclear delivery systems. And what's worrying from a U.S. perspective is that these systems are becoming increasingly diversified, increasingly mobile, more resilient, more effective. And Beijing, which has traditionally relied on a small land-based missile force, is now introducing nuclear sea and nuclear air platforms. And so again, from a quantitative and qualitative perspective, the, the arsenal is growing. That growth in and of itself is a problem. And most experts now say that Beijing is pushing the boundaries of China's minimum deterrent posture, despite official statements to the contrary. Also, and and I would argue even more importantly, the modernization, diversification, and expansion of Chinese nuclear forces, especially the emergence of a nuclear triad, is putting pressure on China's longstanding nuclear policy and strategy just de facto. Chinese officials have had to make adjustments. Let me maybe give you one example. Chinese officials have, have worked very hard 
to reconcile the possible adoption of a launch on warning posture with China's no first use policy, which from my perspective is just an untenable position. It's difficult to argue that you will launch nuclear weapons upon detecting a warning of an incoming attack and still be in compliance with the no first use principle. So technological developments looming large on China's nuclear policy and strategy And it seems to me quite clear that looking ahead, some degree of change in the way China approaches its nuclear arsenal is unavoidable. And, you know, I see it when I when I talk to Chinese colleagues, many Chinese strategists now no longer say that China's nuclear policy and strategy won't be affected. They say that the contours of China's nuclear policy and strategy won't be affected. These are little, you know, very subtle language changes, but it's significant because I think it indicates that in many ways, China is at a crossroads with its nuclear arsenal. And I think that uh, to me, what it says is that the timing is right for China to start to engage in at least a discussion on how to regulate its arsenal with other major nuclear arms states. One of the key components of the U.S.-Soviet and now U.S.-Russia nuclear relationship has been basically acceptance of mutual vulnerability. And the Chinese, I think, for a long time have wanted the United States to accept this mutual vulnerability with China. But the U.S. has refused to do so. We've never seen it in any of the nuclear posture reviews. So can you explain why you think the U.S. has refused up till now to accept mutual vulnerability and whether, from China's perspective, this would be necessary in order to have strategic stability in the relationship? Yes. So the the U.S. position has been really to neither accept nor reject mutual vulnerability with China. And more precisely, I would say that the U.S. position has been to not publicly accept mutual vulnerability with China. The reality is that behind the scenes, at least for the past 10 years, many U.S. officials have privately acknowledged that to their Chinese counterparts, that there is a relationship of mutual vulnerability between the U.S. and China. And in recent years, this again has been communicated to Beijing. In many ways, the strategic stability concept was at least or still is, I would say, a step in that direction, the tacit acknowledgement of a relationship of mutual vulnerability between us and China. Now, the U.S. has chosen to not publicly accept mutual vulnerability with China, in part because it has argued that, again, this is the kind of things that should be discussed in a dedicated dialogue. And it's also refused to accept it for fear that this may embolden Beijing to be more aggressive at the conventional level. And the calculus here is is very simple. If we tell the Chinese that we are in a mutually vulnerable relationship with them, then they will think that they can get away with being more aggressive at the lower ends of the conflict spectrum because they will assume that their nuclear arsenal is providing them with a cover. Now, What do I think about it? I think that U.S.-China mutual vulnerability is a fact of life, whether we like it or not. You know, it's pretty much like the sun rising every morning. It's a reality, certainly a reality here in Hawaii, at least. I don't think we can hope to negate the Chinese deterrent, and therefore we have to rely on deterrence to manage it. So personally, I see value in us acknowledging that fact. 
both because it's not healthy to live in real or perceived denial, and also because I think this would help us make our case stronger to get a strategic nuclear dialogue going with China. Like you mentioned, this has been the primary sticking point for Beijing to accept dialogue with us. Beijing's position has been that Washington's refusal to accept mutual vulnerability suggests that it's at least considering to conduct a disarming strike against China, and therefore this means that the conditions for dialogue are not in place. If Washington were to publicly acknowledge mutual vulnerability, that would put pressure on Beijing to agree to dialogue. I would tend to think that ideally Washington should coordinate such acknowledgement with Beijing's acceptance to initiate dialogue, which would reduce and maybe even eliminate all risks that Beijing become more aggressive at the conventional level in, in its neighborhood. One of the things that you propose in your recent article is that the United States accept what you term uh, asymmetrical transparency. That is, the United States could be more transparent than China is. I think that transparency um, has always been an issue in our relationship with China, not just, of course, in nuclear area, and that the United States, of course, has always encouraged China to be more transparent and has sometimes insisted on reciprocity. So why should the U.S. permit China to be less transparent in some kind of a nuclear agreement going forward? In the paper, what I was trying to think about is, you know, really ways trilateral arms control could happen. So again, let me say up front is I think that there are more chance of us moving with two separate bilateral tracks and then ultimately move to a trilateral track, just like Chris Ford has mentioned. That said, if we were to proceed to trilateral arms control right now or in the not too distant future, I don't think we could do it successfully in a so-called symmetrical framework, one where we would seek to achieve a perfect equivalence between the three countries. So, you know, let me take an example. Consider, for instance, the three countries' strategic forces. Washington and Moscow both have much, much bigger forces than China. In a symmetrical arms control framework, there would be two options. One would require Washington and Moscow to bring down their forces close to Chinese levels. And in doing so, Washington and Moscow would have to reduce their nuclear warheads, deliver systems, and even address non-deployed forces. And this, of course, would require Washington and Moscow to make very deep reductions, and it would present a significant verification challenge. The other option would be to allow Beijing to build its forces up or close to U.S. and Russian levels, and also to allow Beijing to deploy such forces, because right now Beijing does not deploy its nuclear forces. This would involve allowing Beijing to do a massive buildup and require Washington and Moscow to maintain their current level. I don't think this is an appealing framework. What I've tried to, to argue is that we need to consider an asymmetric arms control framework. And if you stick with just strategic forces, under such a plan, the US and Russia could be required to bring their forces down to a certain level in exchange for China pledging not to build its forces beyond that level and not to deploy such forces. That arrangement would make clear that Beijing is not necessarily given a green light to build up to the new level reached by Washington and Beijing, but simply that it's prohibited to build beyond that level. Now, the US and Russia would continue to verify their reduction in a regime similar to what we have right now, the, the New START agreement. 
And China would be required to engage in transparency measures, for sure, to ensure that we have sufficient guarantees that it abides by its pledges. But because it's a much weaker power, China would be allowed to maintain a greater degree of transparency than the US and Russia. And so when I talk about an asymmetric framework for arms control, what I'm saying is that we need to realize that we would gain and we would have to have different requirements for different actors because the forces that the three have are different. And so we need to change the way we've conceptualized arms control if we are to bring a power that has much different forces than we do and then the Russians do as well. Talk a little bit about China's attitude towards verification. Obviously, verification arrangements have been a crucial component of past U.S. agreements with the former Soviet Union and now Russia. This is something that the Chinese don't have a lot of experience with and I would guess would be somewhat reluctant to be very open to on-site verification measures such as the U.S. has had in the past. So have their attitudes evolved on verification? And do you think that China would be willing to allow various kinds of verification that might be intrusive? First of all, you, you, you're right. They just don't have you know, much expertise or experience in verification, at least not in nuclear arms control. So, you know, it would be a very steep learning curve for Beijing, particularly given that Chinese officials have put a lot of emphasis on not revealing much about their capabilities, again, arguing that because they have such a smaller and less sophisticated arsenal, they should not share much about the scope, scale, and, and even plans of their forces. So if getting the Chinese to agree to an arms control agreement would likely be very difficult, getting them to agree to an intrusive verification regime would certainly be even tougher. Now, that's why I've been arguing that, you know, even if nothing can be negotiated at the trilateral level right now, it would not be a bad idea for Washington and Moscow to share with Beijing, you know, for instance, their practices of exchanging missile pre-launch notification and flight test telemetry data. For that matter, U.S. and Russian officials could also invite their Chinese counterparts to observe U.S.-Russian on-site inspections. From my perspective, this is important because this would help build trilateral habits of cooperation. It would, again, help the, the Chinese learn a lot. It would bring them up to speed with Russian, uh, U.S. and Russian verification practices. And at the very least, it would help them get familiar with how it's done, how, how verification it's done. The important thing to remember is this, this is something we can start right now. We don't have to get an agreement to try and get the Chinese familiar with how verification is or would be done. Lastly, I'd like to ask about ballistic missile defense and how this needs to enter into any dialogue between the United States and China. The Chinese have always been very concerned about the potential for the United States to ramp up its ballistic missile defense capabilities. And, and I believe that they have sized their arsenal in part based on their assessments of the BMD threat. So what needs to be done about that issue if the U.S. and China enter into a dialogue? I, I think you're right. I think that uh, 
you know, we're very unlikely to get to a trilateral arms control agreement if uh, we hope to not include ballistic missile defense. And I would even argue other areas, including cyber and space. But for sure, managing defensive systems, U.S. ballistic missile systems, that certainly tops the list. Even on the Russian side, uh, Moscow has, been, has made very clear that it will not conclude another arms control agreement unless there is some control over U.S. ballistic missile defense. And similarly, as, as you mentioned, China has expressed a lot of concerns about U.S. systems, which certainly suggests that Beijing would demand some control to do arms control. Now, I think it's very important to stress that both Russia and China do not fear U.S. ballistic missile defense systems as they exist right now, but they fear what they could become. And what they really fear is the open-ended nature of the program. And they fear that one day the U.S. would not just use the system to negate the North Korean and Iranian threats, but also that they that they would also use them to, to negate their own arsenals, the, the, the Russian and Chinese arsenals. Now, given that Washington has repeatedly stated that it does not want to undermine the strategic balance with Moscow and Beijing, then it seems to me that, a basis, that the basis of a compromise is pretty obvious. It would simply involve finding an agreement on a threshold that distinguishes between the systems that can defend against the rogues, North Korea, Iran, and those that have an impact on the Russian and Chinese deterrent. And, you know, if we find that threshold, then the former systems would be, would be permitted. You know, the U.S. would be uh, allowed to keep the systems that, that can defend against, the rogue, uh, against rogue states. But the latter system, the system that would have an impact on the Russian and Chinese deterrence, would then be prohibited. I think this is this is something that we certainly need to look for, and this could be you know either integrated in a future trilateral arms control agreement or it could be a separate agreement. We've been talking with David Santoro, who is vice president and director for nuclear policy programs at the Pacific Forum. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thank you. 